This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components with over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets. Check out renthal.com. So on today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be talking about the Indonesian test. Obviously, MotoGP preseason testing is now firmly in the books. So we've got David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on the show to get everyone up to date. And uh, Neil, obviously the biggest news for everyone is you're now COVID free and you're out of COVID jail. So uh, you've no doubt been uh, busy the last few days just uh, getting back to a bit of freedom. Exactly, Steve. Yeah, there's nothing quite like uh, getting that little bit of sun on your face for the first time after 10 days of being isolated in, in your room. It's uh, it's quite a feeling. Um, but yeah, COVID free, I mean, I, I would say the first three days were probably like a, a very severe hangover. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone really. Um, but then after that, I was completely fine. So yeah, it was more just the isolating that was uh, making you, making me slightly unhappy. Um, but as you say, free again now, sun is shining and um, yeah, happy to have to be back out there. Dave, obviously enough, Neil's saying that it was great to get himself out of his isolation, out of his room, back into the real world. Um, you were probably the same after the Indonesian test, to be honest. Uh, well, apart from the fact that I'm not all that keen on going outside anyway or uh, uh, mingling with people, isolation sounds entirely uh, entirely uh, pleasant. However, I did enjoy going out on my motorbike yesterday um, because it wasn't raining for about the first time in about six months. So um, uh, that was great. Obviously enough for Adam. It must have been a good weekend, Ad. It's the last week of freedom you'll have probably until Christmas, maybe. Hold on, Steve. Are you aiming from the golf course yet? I mean, have you combined, <laughs> you know, a bit of superbike testing and, and golfing? I mean, is that a microphone in your hand or a club handle? Still haven't worked it uh, out. It's a it's a seven iron actually, but uh, let's not let's not talk about that. Ad. Obviously, everyone's <laughs> only keen to to hear what you have to say about the MXGP season starting at the weekend. Obviously, the British Grand Prix. Yeah, MSGP is getting underway, Steve. I'm just hoping it's not under a foot of snow. Uh, you know, the weather forecast in the UK hasn't been too friendly of late from what I can gather. Um, I was due to go to Madrid um, tomorrow. We're recording this on a Tuesday and they were going to have the the uh, first premiere of the MotoGP Amazon series, uh, Unlimited. And, you know, I'm not too sure what you guys think of the title of this series, but it seems a little bit lame, I think, uh, un unlimited. I mean, I think, you know, Dawn have already used that title for a Mark Marquez uh, documentary that they put out on MotoGP.com two years ago. Um, and, you know, you just have to do a quick search on the internet and there seems to be quite a few unlimited uh, around. I think Life at Speed was a working title at one point and probably was a, a lot more appropriate. But unfortunately, um, we have a slight kind of babysitting issue so we won't be able to make this uh, premiere in Madrid but I do have well Neil and I have the fortune to um, be based in Barcelona and Media Pro Studios who have actually put this series together for for Dorna and Amazon uh, are based just down the road so I'm hoping we might be able to get to speak to a couple of the people who have been working on it uh, maybe try and get somebody on the podcast to talk about it because like it or not um, I mean, many MoGB fans perhaps don't give a toss about a series that is not particularly revelatory. Uh, you know, this is going to be some sort of sort of tangible um, asset for MoGB in terms of either raising awareness or getting new fans or just, you know, another stream of kind of content. You know, I kind of almost hate myself for saying that, but it is another kind of uh, strand of entertainment, if you like, based around uh, the sport that we love. So um, hopefully we'll get some sort of update on, on the podcast as well in the next coming weeks. Can I just ask, Ed, it 
on the new MotoGP documentary, are you in it as much as you're in the MXGP review of last year? Because <laughs> I uh, hope not, Neil. You are in pretty much every scene of that one. If uh, yeah, viewers the... want to go and see the, the luscious grey locks waggling uh, <laughs> in the wind, locks. Oh, I wish. But let's just qualify that because um, first of all, the Racecraft series, which is produced by Red Bull, is about MXGP. is actually pretty good, and I am in it a lot. So if if people have an aversion to me or my voice or whatever, uh, then steer clear. But otherwise, it's um, is a pretty good take on the 2021 series, which went down to the last race of 38 with two riders tied on points. Um, so you can, you know, skip through some bits. So if you get too uh, um, irritated by my presence, you know, which a lot of people were and are, then uh, you can, you know, see some of the, the decent action shots. But thanks for flagging that, Neil. My esteem is boosted already on the podcast in the first five minutes. <laughs> You'll be able to know how all of us feel. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I did uh, speak to someone who saw sort of uh, uh, a, a bit of the series and it is supposed to, it, the, the, they told me it was very good. They said, you know, it is proper inside stuff and warts and all and um, uh, very much like uh, the, the, uh, the, the F1 thing. So that is promising at least. Um, it's just absolutely mystifying why um the, the i mean we don't know when the 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 series is going to be released we saw there was a the, the, there was a thing on twitter today um that uh, amazon accidentally flagging up that it would start on march the 14th i think which is uh, basically a week after uh, qatar which seems a very sort of odd choice of premier date it does yeah i also i just have the feeling that um they would have to really do a spectacularly bad job for it not to be entertaining, considering how good last year was. I mean, it wasn't just good racing on track and interesting championship, but it was um, lots of side stories and, and drama all the way. So I, I kind of feel like for the TV or for the director of the series, it was kind of like manna sent from heaven, heaven in many respects. Um, yeah, it, it, basically the action spoke for itself. Well, there's a couple of points there. I mean, if we're going to talk about the series, you know, straight at the top of the show. But the first thing is, um, essentially, it's a vehicle not for people like us who are already well attuned to the series, I would gather. Um, my kids are, are currently, you know, addicted to Drive to Survive. I think they're halfway through the second season. Um, and the way that the series is kind of portrayed for anybody who hasn't seen the F1 is it's very much a look into the characters. Um, you know, the last episode they watched had Carlos Sainz. Um, you know, they went to film him having, you know, a big kind of summer lunch of his family on, on I think it was one of the Balearic Islands. Uh, they also went with him while he was spear fishing. So they're, they're doing stuff. They're kind of taking these personalities away from the track and out of the sport. Um, you know, and, and providing a whole different look um, on the championship, which I think is something that MotoGP really needs. Uh, you know, you do have the physicality of, of racing a motorcycle, which is so much more visual than like Formula One or any kind of car racing. But then again, you know, these, these are people that we see for, what, five, ten minutes on the grid before a race starts. And there's not a great deal of insight into these kind of characters and what's, what makes them essentially daredevils to pull a cliche. So, yeah, and Dave, you know, your point about the series starting, I, I agree that it's slightly weird to have a timing, but then, you know, I, I kind of look at it on the other side as well. And I think, you know, if 2022 MotoGP is already running, uh, there's already some new stories, particularly in markets like Spain and Italy, uh, you know, then to, to suddenly throw another form of kind of entertainment in there. Uh, another outlet for the sport is just really jumping on the back of the 2022 series rather than, you know, throwing it in there before. And, you know, it's just a different marketing approach, I guess. 
Just um, about the Drive to Survive ad, just wondering what your thoughts are on actually watching it, because obviously you're not an F1 fan, but would it make you more inclined to actually sit down and watch a race? Um, I mean, I'm not a fan of F1 currently, Steve. I love the history of it. I mean, you know, I, documentaries like Senna and, you know, there's there's quite a few, actually, if you hunt around on, on channels like Amazon and, you know, Netflix uh, documentaries about Ferrari and um, Fangio as well. But uh, I, I think I would. I mean, there is... You cannot deny there's a kind of soap operatic element to Drive to Survive that is quite appealing. And I think that's, you know, explains a lot behind the increased interest in Formula One, which is again shown in whether it's social media figures or, you know, again, other marketing data or even just, you know, the very obvious visual cues from something like the Grand Prix in, of the Americas, where, you know, they had a huge surge in spectator attendances. If that has any kind of similar effect in MotoGP, then it's a win win, isn't it? Yeah, I'm quite interested to see what happens with it because I'll be honest, I've tried to sit down and watch Drive to Survive for each season and I've managed to get about four episodes into it and then I've gotten bored. Yeah, and Steve, you know, one I haven't thing, been inclined to watch on. One thing I will say to that is um, maybe a little bit of context. I'm watching it with the family um, and to see the boys, uh, you know, kind of always asking questions and, and you know, they they have their curiosity piqued by you know, what they're seeing, um, you know, they're asking all sorts of things about not just the drivers, but why the cars are like this. And, you know, why is, is McLaren so famous with doing so badly? And it's really kind of creating discussion points. Uh, so from that point of view, you know, if, if whether it's a, a daughter or a son or, a, you know, a cousin or whatever, if you're getting conversation, if you're getting interest building up around it, then it's working. Yeah, the, it's um, there's this constant discussion about um Whenever someone crosses the line, the directors always cut to the, uh, the you know the, the the people you know the people on the side of the pit wall um, uh, you know waving and cheering and all the rest of it. And it's the same whenever something happens out on track. They always they cut to the garage to show the people in the garage. And a lot a lot of fans get uh, upset about that. But the, the 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 reason they do that, the reason the directors do that, is to make it human. I remember talking to um, a friend of mine who was completely disinterested in sort of MotoGP but so you know she came along watched the race and she's saying afterwards oh no I love that because and it was the same in football because it showed the human side it showed the emotion it showed what it meant and that is what this whole thing is uh, is aimed at doing it's aimed at at bringing people into the showing people the human side of the sport and bringing people into the sport that way rather than I mean yeah, we're going to watch it anyway because because we love it but um, it's about bringing new people in and showing you know a different side yeah, you're absolutely right, Dave. And I think that's one factor you pick up through Drive to Survive. I mean, you know, there's plenty of bad language. There's plenty of drama created out of, you know, essentially storms in a teacup. Uh, there's, the, you know, the, anything that can be dramatized is dramatized. And I think the worst possible thing for this MotoGP Unlimited is uh, the production or, or content of the sort of thing we see in MotoGP.com. You know, if we, if we can, f if you're being forced to digest something that is easily accessible through what the stuff that Dorna pump out anyway, then it's a missed opportunity. I think it really has to, you know, go deeper. It has to show these these guys um, in a brand new light. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time because Dorna for the last couple of years have been putting out things like their behind the scenes footage and some of the candid, which are not really candid, conversations that the riders have behind the podium, you know, whether they're in, uh, I don't know, uh, 
uh, used to have victory lap cars or whatever you know that kind of stuff if it's just going to be eight 50 minute episodes which already is longer than drive to survive i think drive to survive is like 30 minute episodes um if it's just going to be the sort of stuff that we're seeing all the time then it's going to be a real shame i'm really hoping they have gone deeper and i hope they're really going to create more powerful stories from it yeah i have to say like in in the few episodes i've watched of the currency or like the last season of drive to survive one of the things i find quite interesting is actually not so much the driver's episodes or their stories or this that the other i actually find it quite interesting to look at like the paddock insiders the journalists what they have to say they add a lot of context into the show and i think that actually adds quite a lot to it obviously enough i'm just bringing this right back to a podcast filled with journalists so you're all going to agree with that you know what you're talking about so uh let's kick on to the uh, indonesian test because obviously this is the big news at the moment motor gp winter testing is done and dusted and uh unfortunately for everyone dust was probably the key word in the indonesian test we saw the first couple of days were really just about clearing the track as much as possible we did see everyone get down some pretty fast times by the end of it and uh david there's a lot to digest from the test i think obviously enough we'll, we'll talk about the over all times we saw honda very strong with paul leading the way on on his new bike and he looks like he's made a big step forward we saw fabio quattararo was up in second fastest but wasn't actually overall very happy with his week we saw aprilia strong again suzuki looked good but uh, when you look at this test i think the big talking point has to be the track condition and even just as we're recording this an hour ago we saw confirmation that there is going to be some resurfacing done at the track what's the main reason that they've needed to do that for anyone that didn't keep up to date with the test uh, well, it's a good job you're on this uh, podcast, uh, Steve, because we're going to be able to ask you about what it was like when Will Superbikes was there back in November. Um, I mean, there's a number of things. First of all, the track was filthy, and th that's just a question of the track not being used and lots of construction work go going on around it and lots of dust and dirt getting on the track and then having tropical rains washing dirt on, washing dirt off and generally turning the track into mush. Um, the bigger problem is the uh, basically the stones used in the aggregate. The, the, the surface is degrading really quite badly and very, very fast. Um, the, the, the problem from speaking to people is the stones used in the aggregate. They are too soft and they were getting crushed when uh, basically while, while the track was being surfaced, the, the because asphalt or tarmac is a combination of uh, tar which is a petroleum product and stones and the stones that they use the tiny little sort of sharp pebbles um you want quite a, you want a relatively hard uh, kind of stone so you have to be careful about the about the stone that you choose but he seems to have, have chosen stones which were far too soft and the stones were actually falling apart they were being cracked and breaking uh, and then coming loose out of the tarmac and then being thrown up um, uh, I mean we saw riders all over the place with really really very large big red marks where they'd been hit by stones uh, and you'd have to suspect the, I mean, I'm surprised that nobody's uh, radiators got hold because you would sort of think that that's exactly the kind of thing that would happen with all those stones uh, that were kind of, that were being thrown up. The biggest problem was the the the, the, the straight and turn one because that's where the um, uh, that's where the most force is going through the uh, through the tarmac, uh, and that's what they're going to do from from basically the final corner through to turn five. Um, whether it's going to be enough, it's going to be is another question altogether. Yeah, obviously enough. Uh, never, never good when your stones are getting crushed, Dave. But uh, Adam, <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you a question about that because obviously motocross, supercross, the track prep is the most important thing. And it's interesting that when we look at some of the newest tracks we've had in MotoGP and World Superbikes, 
Bury Ram in 2016, we had a big issue down at the hairpin. If you look at Argentina, we had a similar enough issue to to what's happened in Indonesia as well, where the the stones started to chip and uh, riders were getting pelted by that. Obviously enough, the issue that MotoGP had is different to what happened with superbikes. The track was brand new for superbikes. Now it's bedded in a little bit. And when you put 300 horsepower through it, that's obviously going to create some issues. Do you think is one of the key things whenever we look at these new tracks being built that really the FIM need to look at track homologation and say, this is the exact specification of asphalt that we need to use? Or is it where we do need to leave it where you're able to design it specifically for individual areas? Because obviously Mizano actually has a very different track surface to somewhere like Aragon, because in Mizano you've got quite close to the sea, so they wanted to have an asphalt that with salt in the air would react differently compared to somewhere like Aragon where you're, I don't know, 200 kilometers away from the ocean. I mean, it's always a, a factor of local conditions and climates as well, Steve. I mean, even if you take a series like Supercross, which stays within the boundaries of North America, um, you know, the promoters are taking out dirt essentially from containers, uh, which have been, you know, uh, holed up for better part of 11 months and taken out only for something like monster trucks and then Supercross, and they're spreading it around a stadium floor. Uh, that dirt in that time in that container may have been more humid, it might have been drier, you know, it hasn't been filtered for stones. I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's the kind of template you're working with. And Lombok is essentially uh, an island, well, it is an island, and you, 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 you're, you're, in terms of, I imagine, ferrying and shipping raw materials in there to make this circuit, then there, there's limited means. I mean, you have to consider the size, uh, the ambition and the cost of this circuit in the first place. And I think you have to give the Indonesians some leeway in terms of teething problems. Uh, you know, the whole delays uh, caused by the pandemic over the last two years. I mean, there's a certain amount of, okay, grudging acceptance i think of the conditions and i think that's why MotoGP went there for a three-day test but my takeaway like you rightly pointed out with mxgp and motocross is that a track is is such a a character or a component of a grand prix riders tend to spend a lot of time talking about the conditions as much as they are talking about potential rivals on that you know one one essential weekend so it's, it's very unusual to hear you know so many comments on the surface you know from MotoGP riders of course it's a new place and they're trying out the layout and the layout had the thumbs up generally for most people uh you know and especially when it came to the safety like runoff then the riders loved it but it was kind of bizarre to have uh, the fir- the first half of the day them talking about the the wet track then the muddy gooey conditions found on the surface and then how it dried but then it was still so dirty away from the racing line and then by the end of the third day when dave was pointed out that the quality of the asphalt was cracking up it's um i just couldn't help but feel it made MotoGP look a little amateurish uh, i think they're there too early uh, i wonder you know what was the real motivation you know is there is there contracts in place do they really have to get the race here on 2022 or there's some kind of penalties or you know it all seems a bit forced for me I think um, obviously the the resurfacing um, and the stones being thrown up is a, is a real concern and we've got basically less than a month for them to enact those changes. But I think also cleaning the rest of the track is going to be uh, a big issue as well because um, from the first day until the, the final day, basically there was one race in line that um, the bikes had cleaned and if you went off that, everyone was saying that it was dangerous, basically as soon as you hit the brakes, you would 
lose grip automatically and then crash. And I think the majority of crashes that we had over the three-day test were due to riders running ever so slightly offline and then, um, you know, fall and fall to the, the kind of the dirt and mud that was, uh, that was on the track surface. Um, and that's going to be difficult because, you know, it's okay testing when riders are riding essentially on, alone on track. But when there is a full grid... Um, then it's going to be a big problem. I think Luca Marini was saying um, that they were trying practice starts uh, on the final day. And if you were on pole position, you would be massively penalized just because that side of the track was so dirty and there's no way in hell that you could get a clean run off it. So, um, yeah, I would say obviously that the resurfacing is it's a big, big job, but it seems that they also have their hands full cleaning the rest of the track um, off the racing line because... Um, in its current state, it's nowhere near raceable, it seems. Uh, the FIM press release did say, and I quote, uh, the venue will also prepare for the Grand Prix by employing world-leading technology to ensure the entirety of the surface meets MotoGP standards, with MotoGP, with TM, after because they're, they're, they was, you have to have that in any Dorner press release. But... Um, that means that they are going to spend a lot of time doing it. But just the location of the, uh, the, the circuit is difficult as well because, first of all, it's in the tropics. Um, that means the sun is shining directly overhead. I think we had track temperatures of 60 de to 62 degrees at one point, uh, one of the riders was saying, which is just incredibly hot. Um, then it's... It's on an island, like Ad said. Um, I mean, it's a large island, and uh, so it's not, you know, it, it's not sort of cut off from the world or anything. But it's also an island with an active volcano on. So uh, there, and I think in the, I mean, in the past couple of years, certainly the past five years, I think there's been at least two uh, sort of eruptions. So that's been uh, a problem as well. That means that there's lots and lots of sort of dust just generally blowing around, uh, blowing around because the volcano is throwing out, um, is still sort of regularly throwing out uh, smoke and dust and all the rest of it. Um, and it's right next to the ocean as well. So there's, there's this sort of great big mixture of uh, uh, challenges in terms of the location and environment where the, where the track is. I think um, in Dorna's defence, you have to realise that conditions and modifications like this are at the the mercy of the organizers i mean if somebody is calling you or emailing you saying we will be ready it will be sorted you know don't worry you know we've got four or five weeks we're going to get this this and this done then you have to put faith in your your co-promoter at some point um i i, I don't I guess Dorna cannot have somebody living there, you know, giving constant updates for the next month. You know, at some point they're going to have to have this race. But it seems like, uh, you know, while riders like Ralph Fernandez were, you know, very absolute about how the Grand Prix could run, uh, it could run without a problem. There were other riders who were very concerned about the facilities around the circuit, um, especially if you have thousands and thousands of uh, crazy, very passionate Indonesian fans flood into Lombok, uh, which is fantastic news for the company's tourism industry. But then if the circuit isn't quite ready to deal with that surge of interest and that attention, I'm, I'm talking even just in basic security premises for the riders, then that's another whole other issue, um, aside from the fact that riders are getting pelted by loose bits of granite. It's, um, I mean, it's a chicken and egg situation. That though, I mean, it's being the circuit is being built to promote tourism, um, which means building facilities. But you can't really afford to build facilities until they actually, uh, and, and, and until people actually start turning up. So, so, like that is uh, that is a little bit difficult. Difficult, and you talk about people 
uh, you know, Donna not being able to have someone there to watch what's doing. That's why you have contracts. I mean, basically, you have contracts in place to make sure that people uh, do what they said they're going to do. And if they don't say, do what they said they can do, uh, they're going to do, then uh, there has to be financial consequences. So I suspect that uh, this press release is more about um, pushing the ITDC, the Indonesian Tourism uh, Development Company, who are behind this, uh, to actually do what they're going to say and um, make sure they do so financially. Yeah, because I was just going to say, Dave, obviously when we went there for Superbikes, it was the second event that had taken place there. The Asia Talent Cup was the, the grand opening. But this week for MotoGP testing was very different to what we experienced whenever we went for the race because when we were there, obviously they were, they were finishing off the uh, finishing off the paddock, finishing off the facilities. We went and uh, on the the week before when Asia Talent Cup arrived, they were still finishing off the garages. So a week later when we arrived, all of the toilet blocks, the pit complexes, race control tower, medical facilities, all of them had been fully finished and, and were ready. The track surface was brand new and it offered tremendous grip. This, this was pretty clear in the wet conditions, but Obviously enough, there was a lot of cleaning to be done on the track. We had a couple of days of really bad weather as well. Saturday and Sunday, we had torrential rain on both days. We had very similar track conditions to what MotoGP had during the test. You know, Then in that region, conditions are very stable. We had 60 degree track temperature. And it's one of those situations where because of the extra work that's being done now down there, because the biggest issue that they're going to have in Indonesia is the infrastructure around the place. They're still finishing off the, the motorway that's going to go down to it to link it up to the airport. That should be finished pretty soon. Like I actually, I took a wrong turn leaving the airport and I drove most of the way down to Mandalika on a motorway that wasn't quite finished. And, uh, and you found the golf course. My way around. I found the golf course, Adam. Don't worry about that, mate. Um, obviously enough, we were uh, we were we we weren't on lockdown. So if I had have been able to go out for a cheeky few holes, it would have been perfectly acceptable. Um, but when you go to a place like this, you go fully expecting and accepting there's going to be issues. And Neil, obviously, you lived in Indonesia for a while after you finished college. You know the the passion that there is for MotoGP down there, but it's also one of those situations where there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And this is a, probably a good country to be able to go to for places like this because they just, uh, they sent the Jakarta police down to take over Lombok Island for uh, superbikes. There was a huge police presence down there. There's huge resources that can be put into place for any of the work that they need to be done. But it is a case of the clock's ticking there to get it all ready for MotoGP. But it's like anything else, as long as the, the dress is finished before the wedding, everyone's happy. Yeah, exactly. And well, less than four weeks to do it. I mean, yeah, as you say, clock's ticking. Just um, looking at the times as well, Dave, obviously we're going to take an ad break pretty soon, but just looking at the times, we did see a market improvement all the way through. You mentioned that the riders love the track or really enjoy the layout of the track. The reason for that is it's very fast layout. I said last week on the pod that lap times for us in Superbikes were pretty much the same as Catalonia. You'd expect that as that track grips up, it's going to get closer to Assen's kind of average speed and, you know, everyone loves a good fast track. Yeah, th that's exactly it. I mean, the one criticism, if you like, that they had was it, it's not very challenging. So it's not uh, it's not a very difficult circuit, which is why 
we saw even on the first day, despite there being the track being filthy, we're already having very, very fast times. Uh, so it's not difficult to learn. There's no real sort of secrets to it, but it is fast, it is flowing, uh, and it is very, very, I mean, bits of it, because it's fast, it's quite tricky. The uh, the, the riders were saying, uh, especially, for example, uh, Jack Miller was saying he was, one of the things he was struggling with was uh, the, the fast section through, I think, uh, like four, five, six, seven. There's a, a bunch of fast corners there where the... It, he didn't have enough front grip. If you don't have enough front grip, then it's those corners are so fast that it gets it's quite scary uh, uh, going through there. So you really have to have your bike set up like that. But once once it's set up, people comparing it to Austria, which I thought was, uh, or Alex Rins was comparing it to Austria, which I thought was an interesting um, uh, comparison because that also is a very fast track. Uh, not very complicated, um, but yeah, a bike which is fast and needs to uh, uh, takes a lot of bravery. Um, uh, Asen as well, Dave. Fast. Yeah, but Assen is difficult. Assen is really, really difficult. Um, uh, that that's not like Austria is a much simpler track layout. Uh, there's some really horrific. Uh, there are because there are parts in Assen where riders can make a real difference. If you think about um, the um, uh, was it Holger Heider the, uh, the, the 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 fast left uh, left right flick, you can gain you know two or three tenths just through that one section, which isn't even a corner uh, uh, really. Or the Ruskenhook the the uh, at the end of the back straight that, that bit through there. The fast riders, they have secrets. This doesn't look like a track where there are secrets where you can find an extra couple of tenths. If you think about, you know, Casey Stoner through through turn three at Phillip Island because he, understand, he understood how to get more out of it. I don't think this is a track like that. Yeah, obviously enough, uh, we're going to take an ad break right now. But when we come back, we're going to look at a couple of the big storylines. Fabio Quattararo and Honda is what we're going to look at next because it was quite a contrasting test for both of them. So we're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, we're looking back at the Indonesian test. Obviously enough, Neil, I just mentioned before the ad break, we're going to talk about Honda and Fabio Quattararo. So I'll give you your pick. Do you want to look on the, the good news or the bad news <laughs> side of the Indonesian test? Uh, let's start with the good news, Steve. Why not? I mean, Honda have been in Honda have been in the doldrums for long enough, and I think um, you know we have to give them uh, some praise after. Uh, well, as I just mentioned, yeah, two really t- tough years. Um, it does seem that they have taken on board exactly what all of the four riders were complaining of last year and uh, moved to address those issues. Um, and you'd have to say, um, at the moment, just going off the kind of the speed and the consistency of all four Honda riders, you know, including the two LCR guys, Alex Marquez and Taka Nakagami, you would probably say that Honda are in maybe the best shape going to um, Qatar because, uh, you know, we've gone to, to two new tracks um, in the last two weeks and, um, you know, the Honda guys were, were kind of fast when they needed to be. Um, you got the impression that Paul Espargaro set the fastest time and wasn't completely at the limit. Mark Marquez 
has come through two tough tests for his physical condition and you know seems to have passed obviously there have been some issues with his uh, with his shoulder he was talking off um in sepang and in indonesia but still he only started uh, full training again mid january um and you look at the kind of the race simulations on the final day that the lcr boys did i mean it was faster than fabio quattararo both of them so um i would say Honda have done a, a fantastic job, really, to not only correct the sort of the wrongs of last year, but to, to build a bike that all riders seem to be very comfortable on. Yeah, I think you're, you're right there, Neil. I mean, just looking at Paul Espargaro, I mean, we know the Espargaro brothers are prone to uh, super optimism or super negative takes on things. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely... Uh, you know, a tendency to want to be swinging very deeply one way or the other. Um, but Paul's comments were particularly revealing. I mean, he said, uh, you know, the, I think he said to me like the Honda was safer than ever. Um, you know, when a rider has that kind of confidence, um, especially in such hot conditions, which were, you know, a particular Achilles heel for the bike in the last year or two, uh, then that bodes very strongly. Um, and also, like we said on the past podcast note show uh, from the test, you know, the, the race pace of riders like Takan Nakagami and Alex Marquez were particularly encouraging as well. Um, you know, for a rider like Nakagami, who you could say, uh, you know, the axe could be hovering over his head more than any of the, the other Honda riders um when it comes to contracts for next year um the fact that he might be able to go quicker slightly easier and not be pushing so much on the limit um could be you know really really good for him i mean this could be a season where he breaks through and makes those first kind of podium results uh you know things things looking very shiny at the moment uh, yeah, there was a uh, the HRC put a, uh, a quite a good little video with uh, Kuatas and the um, basically the the, the MotoGP uh, project leader or the, the you know the I think he's the race I forget exactly general the manager general manager there you go with the the, the big boss. Um, what he was saying was basically uh, he talked about this bike about Honda breaking out of their shell. Um, by which they mean, you know, basically, you know, destroying it, being it, starting all over, um, and it really is a completely different bike. You know, the, the the it has the rear weight balance. I remember, like Paul Espargaro talking about, I missed my rear brake um, uh, because he hasn't been able to use his rear brake in, the, in in his first season, season with Honda, and so you know, talking about talking about missing his uh, his rear brake like a long lost lover was really quite uh, quite revealing. Um, there's much more rear weight balance, uh, but they can go much much faster with this bike because it it wasn't just all of them if you think about i mean steve was saying two two difficult years the last time anyone other than mark marquez won a race was 2018 so i think it's been it's been much longer than that and the number of victories has been basically since about 2014 2015 the number of victories for non you know anyone not called mark marquez on a honda uh, has been declining all of the time so it, it's been a very very difficult period and now they've turned it around they've completely uh, created a completely different motorbike and um, all of them were fast alex marcus was fast paul Spargo was fast i think they're all going to be comp uh, competitive I, I i really think that honda have done the right thing now i wonder who kind of really takes credit for that cultural shift because if you remember it was only last year around her time that was kind of the idea for for hrc wasn't it you know like we said before on the podcast four four different riders kind of riding four different variations on the setup um, you know, the emphasis firmly being on Mark Marquez, the, the, you know, the greatest rider of the sports scene. 
but now, you know, Paul Spargaro, he looked utterly, utterly dejected in the first months of his, uh, you know, his contract with Repsol Honda. Uh, but now he's, he's reveling in the situation where, you know, the Japanese have created a motorcycle that can be used by more than one person. Um, I do wonder if that's, is that, is that the influence of somebody like Kawata-san banging his fist on the table? Or is that an Alberto Puj saying, listen, we need to be more diverse. Uh, we need to be more uh, versatile you know, with our equipment, um, you know, it's, it's a curious uh, situation to try and find credit, I think. And, um, you know, I really, I really want to see where all four Hondas place in Qatar. I wouldn't be surprised if we see them all firmly inside the top sort of seven or eight positions. Yeah, it does seem that, um, you know, I think you think back to 2018, that was probably the last really strong all-round bike that uh, Honda built. I think Cal Crutchlow that year had one of his best seasons in MotoGP and Mark obviously won the championship. Um, it does seem that they are back to that sort of stage um, because, yeah, as we've mentioned, it's not just the the, the pace, but the, uh, the the one lap speed was certainly there. Obviously, Paul topped the test, um, and, and we know how difficult it was for the Honda last year um, in qualifying trim. I don't think Mark had one pole position, and we know how much of a pole kind of fiend he was in in previous years. So, um, you know, they, they seem to have address, addressed kind of all issues right away right the way across the board so i know it is still pre-season it's still only testing um conditions were slightly weird in uh, indonesia um but i think riders were saying i heard quite a few riders saying that indonesia was probably a better idea of what the season holds for us than sepang just because the grip was low um and um you know, Sepang was super grippy on the final day. I mean, there's lots of rubber down. Obviously, any, everyone can go fast in MotoGP at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I kind of feel that what we saw maybe in the, the final day in Indonesia was quite indicative of what is going to happen. And that's quite ominous for Honda's rivals, I would say. Yeah, uh, Paul Spagro was also saying, like, these kind of conditions where it's really, really hot, that were those were the kind of uh, conditions where he really struggled last year and now he's not struggling which for him was a sign that there's been a really big change i do think um i don't think you can say that the the sort of the, the turnaround has come because of uh one particular person kuatsan or whoever or takeo or um, uh, takeo yokoyama the technical director or whatever i think it's basically um, they realized that they had to change because Mark might not necessarily be there to fix all the problems for them. Um, I think they learned in 2020. And also this is building a completely new bike is a process of at least a year. So I think they saw what happened to Mark in 2020, um, realized what was happening, started designing a completely different motorcycle. Uh, also because everyone was complaining about rear grip. They've been complaining about a lack of rear grip for for years. Um, and they realized, okay, now we have to we have to go ahead. They started work on, on this complete uh, redesign. Um, and they they understood that they needed an alternative. They can't rely on the magic of Mark Marquez, you know, just pulling victory out of the uh, out of the bag every single time, even on bad days. They need to have a a much higher baseline. Um, and that uh, honestly, it's really impressive that they've actually managed to do that. Yeah, I always think that we tend to see it where. People get too much credit whenever it's going really well and then too much blame whenever it's going a little bit wrong. And Honda's obviously, like you said, David, they've found a bit of a solution. What I found really interesting was that obviously Fabio Quattararo's pace over the course of, of the week, when you look at the analysis, he looks really strong. 
he was doing a lot of his times on the softer tire, but he was a lot more fast times than anyone else. The, the only two guys that were close to him really were the two Repsol Hondas. But when you look at this test ad as a whole, it was really interesting to see Yamaha because Quattararo was second fastest on the overall times, only you know a hundredth of a second off the pace. Franco Morbidelli was fifth fastest, so competitive on a single lap, but his race pace a little bit further down the order. And like I said, Fabio Quattararo, even though on paper it looks really strong, he was far from happy all the way through this test. Yeah, it's not particularly, uh, I was going to say encouraging again, but it's um, it's looking pretty bleak, isn't it, for, for the team, the world champions, if their world champion is already holding a kind of resigned look, you know, at the second test of the year. Um, I mean, he was using words like nightmare, uh, limits. Um, you know, you do wonder where Japanese uh, the Japanese firm could go in, the, in development of the M1 next because... Uh, Quateraro might struggle to have the same qualification impact this year as he did last year, which was really the bedrock of his championship. Um, you know, we know that once he gets away or gets away amongst the leaders in a Grand Prix, then he's fiercely competitive. But if he's in a Juan Mir situation where he's going to be starting from the third or fourth row because they can't quite manage a fast lap, I mean, total speculation, of course, then I think, you know, there's going to be another big alarm bell in blue. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the things, this might sound kind of silly to, to some of you listening, that were, were sounding quite pessimistic about Yamaha's chances when Fabio was second. You know, second is obviously pretty impressive, but by the signs of it, he was putting absolutely everything into that final qualifying run at the end of uh, Sunday afternoon. Um, I mean, we heard from someone in the paddock that he had thrown three soft tires at it and he still couldn't beat Paulus Bargaro's time. And that was a time that Paul said, you know, kind of uh, earlier in the day and then he just basically stopped riding because he had tested all he needed to test. Um, you know, Fabio's comments afterwards saying that he had hit, uh, Yamaha has hit the the ceiling of the development of the M1, this current spec of the M1. Um, that is quite worrying because, you know, a Honda, it's a completely new bike. Clearly there's more to come from that. Ducati obviously is a new bike and there's more to come there. Suzuki are already looking very strong as well. Um, you know, I just think that, yeah, this could be uh, a long year ahead for for Fabio. And um completely agree with Adam. You know, take away qualifying. Fabio can't qualify in the first two rows, then he's in big trouble. I mean, last year, he only qualified off the front row, I think, four times. Um, and, uh, well, two of those times were the, the final two races of the year, which were mildly disastrous. You know, he crashed out in Portimao, finished fifth in Valencia, couldn't get anywhere near the, the front. So... Um, yeah, I don't think, you know, we're talking about a guy that's going to finish 12th. In the I still think he'll be running towards the front, but uh, retain the crown. I mean, it's it's looking like a, a bigger ask with each kind of passing day of testing that we've had. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on, Neil. It's absolutely right that um, the problem is that the Yamaha riders feel like they're pretty much at the limit of the potential of the uh, of the bike and uh, all of the other uh, brands are saying, you know, there's mu there's much more from this to come. We're getting much more of a grit, uh, of, of a handle on it. Um, uh, you know, Honda saying, yeah, there's definitely more. Uh, Ducati also saying, oh yeah, th there is a lot more, and we're going to get much faster once we once we get started. So I think there's definitely uh, a, a, a lot of room for improvement there, and not uh, for Yamaha. Um, obviously, Fabio Quattararo has also been making lots of noises about um, 
not quite threatening to leave, but certainly making it entirely pro, uh, very, very clear that uh, he's open to leaving. Um, the question is, where would he go? Because the problem is that there are lots of factories they actually seem to be sort of pretty happy with their rider choices at the moment. If you look at Ducati, KTM, whatever, you know, there's lots of lots and lots of. Um, uh, they're all happy with what they've got. They've got lots of lots of potential. They've got lots of uh, young riders signed up. Uh, Suzuki are trying to sign their, uh, their their two current riders. Alex Rins again, really really strong this um, uh, this test. So, even if Fabio wanted to leave, where does he go? Yeah, I think the answer to that, Dave, has to be Honda. I mean, I think that's something we can just talk about in the next section of the show, because all of this conjecture about who's looking strong and who's looking quick is, is also going to be extra valid for riders that have to make decisions on contracts in the first couple of races, because you can bet your bottom dollar that there's lots of conversations going on already, uh, or lots of inquiries, let's say. But I think, you know, um, we we obviously cannot, we can speculate, but we we don't know anything about race distances, how particular packages are going to last with particular tyres. I mean, the KTMs last year are one example of how they struggle to make the hard work, how they struggle to make the medium work, depending on the climate and the conditions. But I think if you look at the facts that MotoGP went to a brand new track, um, there was lots of adversity like we saw in, with, with the conditions that the riders faced. And the fact that almost 20 of them were split by one second again pushes the the fact that qualification is going to be absolutely essential for the second season in a row you know it's going to be one of the main talking points and fb3 is going to be you know probably the most critical session of the whole weekend before we get to the race absolutely ed um i think when you consider that luca marini probably i think it's fair to say a guy that everyone would consider to be maybe the the fifth fastest guy on the gp22 when he's the guy i think topping day two at uh, Mandalika, then finishing third overall. Um, yeah, I mean, there's going to be five Ducatis. There could be three or four Hondas in Q2. Um, Suzuki's maybe, although that, that remains to be seen. But, you know, yeah, well, this is a, a threat that they've known about. Yamaha has known about for, for such a long time. Um, and I kind of continue to ask myself, why have they done this? They've, they heard... Fabio's comments, in fact, all of their riders' comments at the end of last year, they knew the weak point of their bike. And my only kind of explanation or, or, or um, reasoned sort of take on what why they've chosen to really not add extra horsepower to the bike is because they, they, they understand that if they took away the front-end feel that Fabio has, then it's completely it's completely gone um, because they tried to obviously add horsepower to the 2020 M1 to make it a little faster in a straight line and that just made the bike extremely temperamental. You know, good on occasion, fantastic on occasion, but when it was bad, it was really, really bad. Um, it seems that they've just opted to take the safe route and um, make sure that, yes, the rider is, their main rider is comfortable in the front end, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a big ask to, to ward off that many bikes on the straight. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Wilco Zielenberg for the uh, for a Dutch magazine called Kickstart um, uh, at Sepang, and he was talking about exactly this thing, saying that you know this is the Yamaha is a fantastic motorcycle. It's really really fast, but it doesn't have any horsepower. Um, you know, it doesn't have top speed. It's it, it's the one. It's just one weakness. And if you could qualify on the front row front two rows maybe um then you and you can get out and you can get away then there's no one can catch you but 
The trouble is um, you can't pass people. Uh, if you can't get away from people, people can pass you. Uh, so it's really difficult. And th the thing is, th the Yamaha is a really finely balanced motorcycle. And Yamaha are very, very afraid of um, upsetting this balance by, you know, you add horsepower and it overloads the front. It overloads the rest of the bike. Um, it changes the balance, uh, the, the, the balance of the bike. And to me, one of the most impressive things is Suzuki, who have, you know, a very similar concept of motorcycle yet they've still managed to make the bike faster without losing any of the negative uh, uh, any of the uh, of the bike's really really strong points just to add one final thing as we're sounding quite doom and gloom about the situation you know fabio was talking about his race simulation on the final day i think on the medium rear tire he had previously done it on the soft he said that the medium rear tire was a disaster he said it was one of the worst feelings he's ever had with a rear tire in a MotoGP class, yet he was still substantially faster on average than all of the Ducati guys. So, you know, it's not a complete disaster here. We're not talking about a guy that is going to struggle to finish in the top 10. I still think, you know, he's going to be a race winner this year, a multiple race winner, and possibly a challenger in Qatar. But just, yeah, if you're looking at the bigger picture of the championship, then I think it's going to be quite hard. Yeah, I don't think we're going to look at an Alex Crivier title defense from Fabio. We're going to be looking at a guy that's going to be at the front all the way through. I actually think one of the probably apt comparisons that we could end up looking at through the course this year could actually be Jonathan Ray and World Superbikes last year. Obviously, we saw him really strong qualifying at the start of the year, a string of super poles. But in the race conditions, he wasn't able to break away like he had been doing in the past. Suddenly, he's in a battle with Scott Redding, Top Rack, Razgadioglu. And he's not able to have that consistency that's been his hallmark. You know, Fabio last season was so consistent all the way through. Very Mark Marquez-like in how he was able to build his championship. If suddenly you go from grinding out those podiums every week to it being a top five every week, it becomes a very different challenge to be able to keep yourself in that championship hunt. And I think that's where it'll be interesting to see what happens with Quattro Because, And this is one thing that uh, like we, we get asked an awful lot on uh, Twitter, at Paddock Pass Pod. You know, why didn't you talk about such and such on today's pod? The reason for that is we're limited in the time that we have. There's so many different stories. Fabio is one of the big stories right now. And it, as Neil said, it might sound like we're really down on him. It's just because the expectation is that after winning the championship, you're going to be able to kick on and do it again. That's not always the case. We saw, you know, like I said, Crivier, Kenny Roberts, Nicky Hayden, even Joan Mir. You know, it's, it's a struggle to do that the second year. And uh, that's where Quattro is going to have to be pretty thankful that we're going to start the year in Qatar. Obviously, Yamaha really strong there last year. And then he needs to be strong in Indonesia in those early rounds to be able to give himself that bit of a cushion because that's always been the cornerstone of Mark Marquez's championships. You look at those first three, four rounds before we get to Europe, Mark's always done a really good job of picking up some wins, picking up podiums, keeping himself in the hunt. And then we get to his favorite tracks. And I think that's what Quattro is going to have to do. Obviously enough, Adam's also teased what we might talk a little bit about in part three of the show. So uh, when we come back, we'll take a very quick and early look at that rider market. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. And uh, Adam, I'm going to kick it off with you in the final part of this show because obviously you teased it earlier on the rider market for next year. I always think it's really interesting to look at the rider market just because where's the demand? Who needs who? Where can a rider go? It's always well and good for a rider manager to be going up and down pit lane and saying, you need my rider. But how much of a difference would it make to Ducati or Honda or Suzuki or KTM if Fabio Quattararo was on their bike? Is it enough of a difference to justify the wage that he's going to look for? I think that's one of the big things that whenever you hear Fabio talking a lot about, you know, the Yamaha, like Neil said, the grip's not good. This is the issue, this, that and the other. How much of that is posturing through the media to try and force them to develop things better, force them to know as well that he's looking at other options? Yeah, you're right, Steve. I mean, the question is usually supply, isn't it? What manufacturer is thinking we have um, an emerging product, our bicycle, our motorcycle is getting better, you know, who can take it onto the next level? But you know, if you look at a, a stable like Ducati, then, you know, they have plenty of riders, both experienced and young coming through. Why would they want to eject somebody like Pekka Bagnaia in favor of Fabio Quartararo and Juan Mir, who arguably are the top two riders on the market? Um, you know, and you could save the same for Suzuki. Maybe they'll be better concentrated in their efforts on trying to keep Juan Mir than trying to, say, sign uh, Apollos Bagaro or somebody else. I mean, for me, if you look at the landscape, and Neil and I were talking about this earlier today, uh, you know, if, if Fabio does move, if his frustrations with the Yamaha, you know, surface to a boiling point, which, you know, you could see happening if, if, if there's a bit of a doomsday scenario. But, um, you know, the only place he could feasibly go is Repsol Honda. Um, and Mark, I think, has another two years at least on his contract. So that means, you know, Paul has to go somewhere else and, and Fabio slots in. But if you just, if you follow the guy or you see what he's up to on social media, I mean, he does seem to be a bit of a free spirit. Uh, you know, he seems to, you know, be somebody who doesn't quite fit the HRC corporate mold but then you know they have changed as we've discussed uh, you know the, their technical side maybe they could welcome you know a rider of uh, you know Quartararo's kind of demeanor and approach to racing and life but um, I think it's going to be interesting I, I think it'll be done early I think if there is a big move then it will happen you know traditionally like we've seen in the last couple of years around Qatar time that's why I believe there are conversations already happening um, but it's hard to see there being any major shocks i think this time yeah this is one of the things i was asking people in qatar or in sepang sorry uh, at the test because it you know it, normally you know we're in february we should have had six riders signed by now but there's nothing <laughs> at all uh and steve makes an absolutely solid point in fact he's making the same the, the the same point to me um or the same point as as these sort of uh, team managers were making to me is that you know who needs anyone um it, it's a it, it's about supply and demand supply there's loads and loads of really uh, good riders um but then which factories really need a good rider none of them they all have pretty good riders i mean the only the only team that you think or factory no, not even that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Aprilia, even Aprilia, I've got, you know, Maverick Vinales is capable of winning races. Um, uh, the fact that um, Maverick and Aleish are quite well matched means that Aleish is a very good rider. Um, look at Suzuki. You've got Joan Mir, the world champion, and Alex Rins, who on his day is just unbeatable. 
KTM have got talent coming out of their ears. Uh, Ducati, you've got uh, uh, you know a, a pile of riders just uh, an absolute mile thick waiting up, waiting to get on their bike. Uh, Honda have got Mark Marquez, and they've got um, uh, and they've got Paul Espargaro. And sure, I mean, yeah, you could get rid of Paul Espargaro, but would that necessarily be an upgrade? Paul Espargaro is a, is a very very capable motorcycle racer, um, uh, and the fact that he showed. Uh, you know, he's had so many podiums on the KTM. The fact that he showed his form um, now that he's got a motorcycle that he can that, he, that with some rear grip, he showed his potential both in terms of race pace because his race pace was really strong as well. It wasn't just a, a single lap. There's no, there isn't a pressing need. It's not like, for example, the last time around 2019, 2020, where we were looking at. Ducati have to have a rider. They need a rider. Uh, and they were uh, you know, off trying to poach absolutely everyone, which is why Fabio Quattararo was signed up to Yamaha so early. Um, there isn't that pressing need anymore. You know, Pekka, Pekka Banyaya, Jorge Martin, Jack Miller, who is an extremely accomplished winning, you know, Grand Prix winner, um, has to be, has to watch out because there's so many people coming up behind you because you quite easily put... Jorge Martin on that bike. You could put Enea Bastianini on that bike. Um, this, yeah, I mean, there is so much talent. This is one of the things which actually, as a journalist, is quite annoying because when I first came to MotoGP, 2009, I think was my first full season, uh, 2009, 2010, 2011, it was great. There was basically five riders, maybe six that I needed to talk to, and then I could go off for, talk for, to one more just for to you know, just, just get a little bit of background, and that was it. Um, now... To understand what's going on, you need to talk to, I mean, you know, like 12, 12 riders is the absolute minimum. You need sort of, you know, like 14 or 16. That's how competitive it is and that's how difficult it is. Just a, a couple of things based on what Dave said. I mean, having to talk to extra people because by, de by definition, they're human beings, Dave, must be a bit of a, a trawl oh, for you. So my sympathies. Trauma. <laughs> but uh, I think one of the riders that um, people will be sniffing around uh, will be uh, Raul Fernandez. Um, of course, he was the, the subject of a lot of rumours heading into his first MotoGP year. KTM had him on the contract. He's now in the Tech 3 setup. He's looked actually pretty quick, you know, in testing. I know he had a crash and missed the last day. He actually went out for a couple of laps, but couldn't do any more on day three of the Indonesia test. But, um, you know, he'll be somebody as well. I think the factories will look to secure uh, um, and develop. I mean, you could easily see him being signed by somebody like HRC, being placed into somebody like somewhere like LCR and potentially being groomed up for, for a, you know, another ride later on. Um, I have to say, kind of working in the media at the, or who's going where rumors are quite tedious after a while. Um, you know, you will find somebody that tells you a different version of the same story, um, you know, numerous times. In fact, it's always more interesting to get confirmation of where a rider is and then try to unearth the motivations of why that move has happened. You know, and that was always the drama around Jorge Lorenzo for a couple of years. You know, was it financial? Was there other reasons involved? Um, you know, that's that's really kind of the interesting thing. And one more thing, Dave, you mentioned Aprilia. Um, you know, I think for me, and we'll get to the predictions, I think, in our preview show, but Maverick Vinales is really going to be one of the dark horses of the championship this year. He actually was in um, TV3, which is a regional uh, t uh, uh, TV channel over here in Catalonia. He did a show recently where it was like a James Corden carpool. Um, you know, they have these personalities that jump into a car and they're interviewed as they're driving around. And, um, you know, Maverick was on the show and 
some of his comments were particularly revealing. I mean, things like uh, he had expectations and people were allowing on him from the age of eight. I mean, that kind of mental pressure was, as we've suspected, all through his career been something that's been quite heavy on his shoulders. And I think in that kind of setup in Aprilia where he has a factory ride, there are people depending on him, but it's a little bit off to the left field. I think, you know, with a very capable machine, as the Aprilia seems to be now, um, he could really be a guy that's going to be posting some surprising results. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it kind of muddy, muddies the uh, the market even further. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things I'm quite interested to see as well, and obviously, Neil, you're you're our man in the know on Moto2. I'm always keen to see what happens in that class going forward as well, because obviously for this year, we saw Gardner, Fernandez, Bezeki all step up. But you look at next year and you see, is there anyone that you can foresee making that progression again? And obviously, someone like Ayagura is going to be a rider that Honda's going to be very interested. So we talked about Nakagami at the start of the show, the progress that he seems to have made in Indonesia. But like Adam said, you're still waiting for him to make that step and actually be able to get the podium. If Agura starts the season really strong in Moto2, there's going to be a clamour to get him onto a Honda for next year. You look at some of the other names in that class... Aaron Canada's always quite an interesting one. Obviously for uh, Canada, a lot of experience in the Moto3 class. I think he finished second and third in the world in two different years. Cam Beaubier obviously had some impressive races last year, struggled in the early stages, but was able to show good pace. He's going to be a rider with an American flag that's going to be quite appealing for Dorna to put into the Premier class. Top rack coming across from Superbike's a possibility. So there are going to be riders worth keeping an eye on. And uh, I know that obviously in the IO squad, the rider everyone's going to look at is Pedro Acosta, but it's going to be really interesting to see what we get from Augusto Fernandez as well. Obviously, he had that purple patch in the middle of last year, three podiums in a row. His talent's never in doubt, but the consistency is. Well, you've just gone and done my job for me, Steve. You've listed all the, the possible <laughs> names from Moto2 that uh, could possibly climb up to the MotoGP class. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. Yeah, there's obviously we, we, we still have to see um, how the start of the season pans out. Um, you know, yeah, I think Agura, if he has a, a brilliant start to the season and starts winning races and is in the championship hunt, Honda have to look at maybe slotting him into the LCR squad in Takanakagami's place. Um, if Acosta wins his fourth Moto2 race, maybe they'll start to be talk and speculation about him being fast-tracked to MotoGP, although I still feel that he's too young to be that successful straight away too inexperienced but you know he's a ridiculously talented teenager um so you know we still have to we still have to see what happens there and Kinet maybe it's a it's a bit too early still hasn't won his first Moto2 race um yeah I think I think Augusto Fernandez is, is maybe the other obvious one because I, I fancy him as a, as a real championship contender this year and he's still at the right age you know early 20s to to be able to make up that jump but um but yeah, it's um, it's certainly interesting. Um, but yeah, as Dave says, the, the kind of the, the current talent already in MotoGP. I mean, we have five rookies this year. I mean, you would say someone like Ralph Fernandez, for example, poaching him from KTM might be a higher priority for someone like Yamaha, for example, than the next Moto2 star. Um, and just before we finish, I have to ask Adam, is uh, Catalan Carpool anywhere near as god-awful as James Corden's one? Uh, there's no singing, now. So that's uh, one one blessed relief. But uh, coming back to your previous comments, I mean, do you think a good season or a couple of wins for somebody like Cam Brobier and, and Joe Roberts, I mean, do you think that's going to elevate them to sort of pole position in terms of getting a MotoGP ride? I mean, as we said, there's not a great deal of opportunity there, but you would think the passport in this particular circumstance would help. 
I mean, I think so. I'd, yeah, like, um, you know, we, we, we know that um, America is obviously a big market and um, having an American name in the premier class is obviously a, a big, big thing. Um, but on current status, you know, you would, I think you would need one of those two guys to, to make a big step up um, for that to happen just because, you know, as Dave mentioned, every factory is pretty well off in terms of talent. You know, there was a glaring hole in Aprilia's race lineup at the end of 2020 that needed to be filled. And they were trying to turn to all sorts of different names that were turning them down. Um, and then they turned to, you know, Joe Roberts. I think he was maybe behind Marco Bezzecchi, Aaron Kinnett on their on their wish list, you know. So, um, yeah, I'd say those guys have a lot to do next year for, for an, a door in MotoGP to be opened. Yeah, and I think especially for someone like Joe Roberts, you know, he showed those big flashes a couple of years ago with, I think it was three poles, but he only has one podium to show as well. I think someone like Bobier with all of his experience on big bikes racing in uh, the Moto America Superbike class, that could be something that turns it a little bit more in his favour. But the big question in Moto2 is always going to be who's able to make that big step. We saw it over the last few years. A few guys did make a big step forward. That's where I think someone like Canada in that third year in the class could be quite interesting to see how he can do. Obviously enough, Moto2, we saw over the last couple of years that uh, you know the likes of Sam Lowe's back at the front. He's obviously going to be a rider that everyone's able to judge themselves off. That's the good thing about having an established rider in the class. If they're able to go in and get the job done against him, like what we saw with particularly Raul Fernandez last year, they very much warrant their, their shot on a big bike as well. But uh, obviously enough, uh, we get to the end of the show, the end of MotoGP preseason testing, and uh, it's time for winners and losers on the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, Neil, I'm going to kick off with you. Who was your big winner, not just from Indonesia, but from the five days of, of, of official testing? It has to be Honda, Steve. I mean, it's a, a bit of an obvious answer. Um, you know, we've discussed the reasons uh, as to why it's been a successful preseason for them, but the fact that all four riders are looking so strong in race trim, um, I think, uh, means that Honda have to come away from the two tests uh, really happy and really confident that this can be a, a fantastic year. What about you, Ad? Uh, I'm going to base it on Indonesia, Stephen, and say KTM, because when the factory left uh, Malaysia, it was not looking too bright uh, for the Orange crew, but then. You know, uh, they, they worked a little bit more on the base setting they'd found at Sepang and um, both Binder and Miguel Oliveira, you know, were showing considerable more promise. And some of their quotes as well uh, were alluding to the fact that the, there was still potential to be found in what is essentially the same kind of package, just with some variation from 2021. Um, for the rookies, you know, as we said, uh, Fernandez had his crash on day two and Remy Gardner, of course, is still feeling the effects of that wrist injury. Um, but then, you know, they have had more days testing and in pretty severe conditions. So, uh, you know, I don't think you can expect too much from the from the Moto2 twosome from 2021. But, you know, I'll say, I'll say KTM, you know, I think, you know, the race management are probably a little bit more uh, optimistic after, after the, uh, the Mandalika three days. Yeah, I did actually find it really interesting that uh, Sebastian Reese, the technical director, was saying that they made a really big focus this year on bringing individual parts to the test to work on them rather than changing everything overnight. I thought that was quite a, a very different approach for KTM as well. David, what about you? What was your, or who was your big winner from preseason testing? Well, I mean, the, the, um, Neil has 
made the obvious point that it's Honda, so I shall choose someone else. And I think it's going to be Eric Mahé, who is um, Fabio Quattararo's uh, uh, manager, because <laughs> um, he's going to make an absolute fortune um, <laughs> because Yamaha are going to have to pay um, Fabio Quattararo a lot of money to keep him um, or else someone else is going to have to pay a sizable amount of money to uh, to, to hire him. So um, I think Eric Mahé is going to come out of it um, with uh, some spare change. He won't need to be scrabbling down the back of the sofa looking for money to pay the pizza courier. Yeah, you'd settle be a quid behind him at the end of uh, pre-season testing, you'd imagine. I was actually going to say Peko's manager for much the same reason because <laughs> Ducati came out during the test and said, no, we've got to get him sorted before Qatar. But uh, I think for me, um, the big winner is actually the Grassini team because we've been able to see with the switch to Ducati that uh, Bestia looks really strong. I'm excited to see how he does this year. I think if he can qualify a bit better, he's obviously got a lot of potential all the way through the season. And uh, I think it'll be exciting to see what he can do on that Ducati as well. Um, David, Neil took the obvious winner. We'll give you first first dibs then at, uh, at the who's ob- your preseason loser. At the obvious, uh, the obvious loser. Well, I mean, like I really, I should say the circuit of Mandalika because it's um, it's it has so much going for it. It has so much in favour. Indonesia deserves a race so much, um, and. Even though they've done sort of several things, right? The fact that there's so much runoff, the fact that it's a safe uh, uh, track, all the rest of it. Um, it's just the rest of it. Everything around the circuit is is just not ready for a MotoGP race. Uh, and that is such such a shame. Uh, when they do get things sorted, uh, I mean, I, I would imagine in two or three years' time, that once the infrastructure is there and the hotel's there and all the rest of it, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. But right now, it just looks... Um, it it just doesn't look very good at all. Unfinished. Yes, unfinished. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do always think that that's one of the big advantages that Dorna has from having superbikes and MotoGP under the same umbrella because superbikes are able to go to places like Buriram and Indonesia first and we're able to, in a, in a much smaller scale, give all these places a good test as well. So I'm quite keen to see what it's going to be like in a month's time. I'm not, I'm not going to say too much on the basis of uh, just this week's test. Obviously, there's always big challenges whenever MotoGP rolls into town and they're trying to finish everything in time for the Grand Prix. So that's a bit of a perfect storm as well. So let's wait and see what it's like in a month's time. But Adam, what about you? Who was your big loser from preseason testing? I'm tempted to say the the chap who was looking over the fence, you know, and probably part of turn seven, what used to be his front garden. Um, so there's that kind of environmental factor, of course, uh, of Mandalika and, you know, uh, how it's disrupted some of the the local environment there steve but um otherwise i'm just gonna have to plump for the um the flabby middle-aged man that's my loser from uh, the mandalika test because oi, you know all oi. these i'm including <laughs> myself in that age steve. middle-aged steve <laughs> <laughs> i include myself right. in that bracket day because uh and certainly certainly those of us who are carrying around our own michelin tire because um you know all these riders posting pictures of themselves with their six packs um you know cavorting you know in beaches and enjoying the uh, indonesian climate is just completely unnecessary i mean do these guys know there are kind of like special performance sports layers that they can wear without having to show off um you know these um, perfectly home physiques it's there's no need for it you know stick to fast motorbikes um you know and some sort of daring kind of uh, acrobatic shapes on them and then we'll be happy cut out the thirst Neil. traps 
<laughs> Neil, obviously you were uh, posting pictures of you wandering around Barcelona with a slab of Estrella, but I, I don't think that's quite the same as adding his six pack. Yeah, exactly. It was a different kind of six pack. I think I was caught with uh, Hoi Hoi um, at the weekend. But um, yeah, my, my loser, I guess. Uh, there's so many guys that look to be in strong shape. Um, I think every manufacturer has a reason to be slightly optimistic going to the first race weekend. Um, but maybe one rider that is just quite a bit behind where they would like to be would probably be Remy Gardner, Reina Moto 2 champion. Um, and I think the chances of Remy, you know, coming in and making a big splash in the class is going to be quite difficult. Obviously, he injured his right wrist, broke um, a bone in his right wrist uh, when he was uh, motocrossing, I think back in mid-January. Um, and Remy was just saying at the, the conclusion of the Indonesian test that, you know, the wrist is causing him some issues. He was obviously having to ride well within his limits, um, just because it was so treacherous offline. And he said he hasn't really got comfortable on the bike. He isn't quite happy with his feeling with the bike or with the front end um, and hasn't really found a base. So it does seem that there's a, a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, his, his injury has obviously um, has obviously been part of that. But, you know, at the same token, I think he rode something like eight days of testing in two weeks in 14 days, you know, with a, a recently broken right wrist. That is not easy. So, you know, hats off for getting through it but um it does seem that uh, yeah that injury is going to see him on the back foot for the first couple of races at least yeah i think for me um i'm actually i'm going to go with jack miller as mine and the second uh, week in a row based yeah that's second, a bit well, harsh. Did I go with miller last time? well again i'm going to say the same reasons as i probably said last week in that case the big reason is that it's just so tough and competitive right now and Miller is one of the riders under an awful lot of pressure. And there's so many riders that Ducati have on their bikes that he's under so much pressure going into the start of the season. Now, it's very easy to read too much or too little into preseason testing times. I think until we get to the first round, you know, you can easily have it where Jack goes out and is at his absolute best in Qatar. But going into round one, he's the rider that's under the most pressure of anyone on the grid. So for me, that's where that's, where that's coming from because... You know, we'll, we'll talk all the way through the season about how unbelievably competitive MotoGP is, but that puts all those riders in, in a, a really tough situation as well. So for me, I'll go with Jack right now, but uh, I'm not going to be too surprised if he turns up in Qatar and is immediately able to to get himself into the battle at the front of the field. And uh, obviously enough for, uh, for all of us, we've now got to start gearing ourselves up for uh, the start of the MotoGP season as well. The next time MotoGP bikes are out on track is going to be free practice one in Qatar. David, obviously enough, the next time Grand Prix bikes are out on track is going to be next weekend and you're going to be down in Portimao. I am going to be going down in Portimao, um, going to uh, check out the Moto2 test, have a little wander. There's some people I need to talk to down there. Uh, and also uh, my lovely wife is um, needs some sunshine. So uh, we're going down to warm ourselves up. Well, I tell you what, David, it was absolutely lovely and warm out in the golf course. I mean, uh, up in uh, the the circuit over the course of last week, that was obviously all I was doing down in Portimao. Didn't spend three days golfing nonstop. Uh, Adam, what about you? What's the the plan? Are you getting over to England in time for MXGP, or are you going to be working from home first? No, that's right, Steve. I'll be out for the MSGP opener. Unlike Dave, uh, I have the sunshine. I'm swapping it for the for the cold and the misery. Um, no, fingers crossed, it won't be uh, too bad. Uh, in terms of weather starting the, the the motocross season, even though we're missing some of the um, the stars that made the championship last year so riveting, but uh, yeah, we be it'll be a busy weekend. When do you actually fly out, Ad? 
uh, on the Thursday. Stop in. Oh, okay, so you're not you're not over in time to see the Mighty Rangers. No, 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 no. And um, you know, I hope we win away to Millwall this evening. Otherwise, the season's sliding the wrong way. Fourth in the table, who had still very much in playoff contention. It can still all happen. Neil, what about you? Obviously, uh, next couple of days are going to be busy for you watching football. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll be. Uh... I'll be in close contact with Dave because I'm not going to make it to the Moto 2, Moto 3 test. So um, I'm going to be uh, mining him for little bits of info and uh, gossip that he picks up when he's over there. Um, I moved flats recently, Steve. So currently looking at stacked uh, cardboard boxes. Uh, so lots of unpacking to do. Bit of a rush to get that done before uh, Qatar in, what, three weeks time. So, uh, yeah, that's probably going to be the, the order of the day. I would just like to point out that so far in this podcast, we've talked about F1, we've talked about football, <laughs> and we've talked about golf. Uh, so far, all we need for the uh, for the trifecta is some um, uh, bloody tiramisu specialist and uh, and a uh, comparison of various Starbucks cappuccinos, and my life will be made misery. I had a dynamite milky coffee actually in the midst of this pod as well, so uh, that that made my day as well, Dave. But uh, it has been one of those those uh, days where we've we've sort of veered a little bit off topic at times, but we're all getting ourselves geared up for the start of the season. The big thing for us on the Paddock Pass podcast over the course of the next few weeks is we're going to have our normal pre-season shows where we look at the MotoGP class and uh, we're going to have Simon Crafar joining us again as our season preview. We'll have a Moto2 and Moto3 season preview and uh, that's where having Dave on the ground in Portimao is going to be really interesting to find out quite a lot about those two classes and then uh, we're going to just be getting ourselves ready for the start of the season and uh, we're going to have an awful lot of content up on patreon.com forward slash paddockpass podcast anyone that's a paddock insider already they're paying nine euros a month ten dollars a month for uh, some of the best additional content you're able to find anywhere basically every day of a grand prix weekend we get ourselves together we discuss the biggest news of the day we get you all the latest news from all the debriefs so it's pretty much straight from the riders debriefs onto a call to be able to get a pod sorted and uh, get that posted so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and uh, we'll try and uh, make sure that there's plenty of additional content all the way through before the start of the season as well so from all of us on the team here at the paddock pass podcast big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show and a big thank you to our sponsors fly racing and rent all street This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street Clip-On Handlebars for premium spec race... For premium race spec clip-ons. Premium spec race spec. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street for premium spec race clip-ons. For premium spec race... No. <laughs> Try another one, Steve. Let me find... Let me find it. Let me find it. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street Clip-On Handlebars for premium spec... <laughs> Mate, I'm only down to two bars on my battery. Hello, welcome. Even the welcome's a struggle now, lads. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components with over 800 street fitments for handlebars. Steve, if only you someone paid you to do it professionally. <laughs> I bet you just...
be quiet over there, Adam, and just let me get through this. This is the first time this has happened in a year where I've struggled to get what's, through the intro. What's the big Champions League match tonight? Is uh PSG and Real Madrid. Ah, yeah, we of might course. we might get finished in time for it. We might Killing get finished Mbappe. in time. I'm just changing subject, Steve, so you loosen up and get relaxed, you know. So we're not all like the three of us looking at you. Yeah, I'm not looking at you though, so it's okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. Sorry, lads, we, we ran a little bit long in that section, but we're we're good. Speak for yourself, Steve. <laughs> I'm very good, Dave. Um, welcome, welcome back to the Paddock Pass Cod Cod Pass. <coughs> Cod Pass. Paddock Pass Cod Pass. <laughs> oh, God. 